0: What is up? What is up? What is up, everybody? Hope everyone's doing well. And I'm excited to let you know that we are coming back. Huh is coming back. On this episode, I got to sit down. I was super excited about this. I got to sit down with the co founder of DraftKings, Matt Kalish. Matt, DraftKings, we've started to do some work together in the Vayner world. Um, Gary and Matt. Have a little podcast together. They were filming in the office. I went in, hijacked some of his time, and had a fun conversation where I look to take things. And, and what I hope that you'll kind of take away from our conversation um, is what it really takes to build a, a business and a company over a long period of time and how one individual or an individual and a couple friends can have an idea or a thought and build it into something that has real impact and purpose and, and relevance. And uh, because I, I'm, I know myself, I know a lot of my friends, and I believe a lot of individuals in the one thirty seven p.m. community have a lot of ideas and tools and resources with tech and iPhone now um, to be able to pull some of these things off. You know, access to capital, et cetera. Um so yeah uh, that that's what we touched on um enjoy and hit me on twitter if you got any thoughts on who I should uh interview next
1: This is 1:37 p.m. Stories of hustle and grind from the intersection of culture, style, music and sports.
0: Is that How, your punk? That's my punk. Oh yeah. How do you think this is something I think about? So I got that back in February. Obviously what's happening with punks now. Yeah. That's my like Google AVI company wide. And I kinda sometimes I'm like, am I a
1: douche for having that?
0: Hmm.
1: Like in what, what like are you unrelatable because like, it's unrelatable host, so or like yeah. a
0: fl- like every time you walk into a meeting it's like a flex? yeah over the top i don't know i've been stuck in the middle on it what would your thoughts be
1: i think if it you got it in feb and then it ran up in value that's not your fault yeah it's not really a flex but if you bought it for a half a million like it's probably worth yep then that's a little bit more of a statement about like how much money you're flinging around
0: (laughs) yeah and like i want it because i like it and i want it to represent me but at the same time i'm a little bit like yeah Shit.
1: yeah because i think it also is a, a way of um like showing that you are right about an investment yeah and it went up 20x correct it's like uh or what'd you pay for it roughly? i paid
0: 15 ETH for it
1: yeah okay and I paid, ETH was two thousand uh, uh, dollars Correct. Probably.
0: pretty much on valentine's
1: day so you yeah let's say yeah i paid 29 grand almost grand for 20x it. probably yeah
0: and i was coming off of the back of what's up sam you good? Uh, yeah,
1: thank you for sending
0: this over for me. You're good. Here. We're, we're here. We're just kind of going. I'm going to like kick it off, but we're just kind of chatting now. I'm just going to turn off the camera. If you guys need to yell in or anything, by all means. But otherwise, we're just going to go. Cool? Thank you. Yeah. Um. Yeah. To that note, something that I've been thinking about and would like your thoughts. As someone that's been in... NFTs collecting for some time now and I think obviously sometime February right there's OGs a bit longer and then really if you go back to free minting on punks Um, but some of the newer age projects that have popped up uh, kind of still showing that early investment Cryptodes just ran Mm -hmm. whenever I see a tweet that's kind of like September 8th they bought for $1800 and then Four weeks later, I mean, in the last four weeks, people are making 20, 25x. Mm. How do you uh, think about, as a business operator, putting your mindset of like almost um, ignorance is bliss, right? Like almost sometimes having too much exposure or awareness in a new market, I think can lead to blind spots. Right. Like I've, I've become comfortable because I've made these good plays and then I pay attention less to what's happening or the mindset of a day one person coming into crypto right now. Yeah. An example, DraftKings. You know the product cold. You guys have been in the market forever, but there's a ton of users that have never used your product that you're still looking to onboard. That's a completely different experience for them. Are there certain things you look to do to just stay fresh, fresh eyes on markets?
1: Yeah, it's hard to not get biased by relatively little. Yeah, you, know, you have some experience, yeah. but it's ultimately like very little experience, and you've seen like three things happen, and then you get this like generalized view like, i i had a few things pop up like um i had this bias very strongly that you didn't want to buy floor anything yeah it was like the floor crypto punks all suck like yeah. do not touch them yep. you want to go up market you know instead of buying like three at the floor by one yeah big one. it's like
0: the blue chip within blue chip
1: yeah because that was back in maybe april that was how the general yep. consensus was yep and now you fast-forward six months, and that was actually really bad. Like, the tactics there were <laughs> yeah. terrible. You could have
0: got three floor for yeah. the one, and it would have been much more valuable.
1: Yeah, you see, like, a big uh, kind of consolidation. The floors are running up. The, the mid-tier, not as fast. Yeah. So maybe you have something in the mid-tier that it doubled. Yeah, The floor's up 10x, you know? And, yeah, that behavior just as the market became a little bit, you know, broader, more participation, you know, a little less niche, I think people were looking for that entry into projects and, and the floor looked really appealing. Mm-hmm. Then you also saw these, uh, I think, entities jumping in and sweeping the floor, yeah, that yeah, like yeah. 100 yeah. crypto punks at the floor. Yep. And, you know, not just that project, but across the board. and. Just totally missed that, and yeah. so. But I had this bias that really prevented me from maybe like being in more floor positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example was I had this thing in my head: like new avatar projects just aren't going to work. Correct. There's never going to be another like yeah. amazing like one. Done. There's no point in being involved in those. Yeah, and so I had this mentality: like I'm going to jump in and and like flip them over a day or two. Mm-hmm. If I, you know, I'll buy and then sell them mm-hmm. within a few days. And so I did that with stuff like, um, like sup ducks yep, or, yep. um, you mentioned crypto toads. I probably fumbled the ball <laughs> worse than any, like to the tune of like seven figures on crypto toads, just selling too early. Cause I believed, like, I really believed that there was never going to be another like 10 ETH floor avatar yeah. project. Yeah. And that was just a, a total fail. So I think the bias can creep in and mess up maybe like what otherwise could be a, a broader strategy that's a little more diverse.
0: Have you, in your years, obviously operating, building a business, are there certain things that you do to kind of check yourself on on biases?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a few things like as as you grow a company, you go from relatively like lower dollar decisions to bigger, Mm -hmm. more scaled up Mm -hmm. decisions that have more weight behind them. And, you know, the size of DraftKings now is, you know, um, like the revenue is in the, you know, billion plus, not like hundred million or (laughs) not tens of millions. Right. And you want to keep the culture though. You want to keep the fundamentals of how people make decisions in the company you know, strong from a, it doesn't matter if it's $1 mm-hmm. or millions of dollars. So like right, we should evaluate. be approaching it the same. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, myself and my partners being from a, a data analytics background and also from things like poker, you know, mm-hmm. where you learn in poker. It's not, um, mm-hmm. you kind of lose a lot of the, the emotion. It becomes less of the,
0: fun it, you know, as you get better almost because you need to remove the, I just want it to be fun aspect.
1: Yeah, it's less. um, I mean, corporate America is very results oriented. But in poker, you learn like evaluate the decisions you're making based on the data you have. Mm -hmm. It's incomplete information. Um, Every single investment you make isn't going to work out perfectly. You might get unlucky, or you might play to some set of odds that it doesn't pan out. Mm -hmm. But in general, like you want to make decisions that you know, have a good grounded foundation in like the rationale and the math. Correct. Right. So that's kind of how I got into corporate analytics was I played poker all through college and then I got into data analytics because it just reminded me of that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and initially I was more like in a consultative role in companies and yeah. then I moved more into operational roles, uh, like in marketing or, or now at DraftKings I'm running North America operations in full and I think that's a really like interesting track because yeah. you start from like a really solid foundation in analytics and math. And then uh, eventually, though, you have to like really apply it, really make decisions, really be held accountable for. Yeah. There becomes you know, gray. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the the journey that I took was, you know, starting with something pretty theoretical and then starting to like really apply it, mm-hmm. really put, you mm-hmm. know, decisions in market and see how all of that worked uh we kind of just jumped in and i love it i'm going to give
0: a, a very brief quick intro to the combo, um and then i want to uh, there's a thought i want to kick off with um but i i have the luxury and i'm honored i kind of hijacked uh matt matt kalish is here in town uh with to do some content with gary around props and drops i was able to steal some of his time to sit down and talk to the one thirty seven p.m audience on my podcast that i call huh which is generally around being curious. I also think the word huh, like if you use a different tone, it can mean a million different things. So I think there's something very fascinating there. But Matt Kalish, if you go to his LinkedIn, but also known simply now as Kalish, I think in in the NFT community, it's funny (laughs) because I was telling the team, we had eight new individuals start on one thirty seven PM today, the team's now 35. And I was telling them uh, I was interviewing you and it didn't click for some, and then I said Kalish and they're like, Oh, Kaylish? Like you know the way i like, I'm like yeah, 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 yeah. So so that's kinda cool. Um but but I think when I was kind of gearing up and just trying to put into my head, hey, what what do I think is a, a fascinating conversation to have One, I think there's a little bit of a degenerate in everyone. I grew up, the first site I started making sports bets on. Actually, the first one was like, they give you a penny for free and you see how much you can build up. And if you get a dollar, you can cash out. This is old school, then there was Blue Wagers. But I also remember when every other commercial was about Daily Fantasy. Talk to me about the day when you thought, or or you, and I think it was Alex, and, and the crew came together with an idea for something. And then you're sitting here now with the DraftKings crew neck on and DraftKings is like a, a global known brand. Did you believe it was possible?
1: So the idea of DraftKings really started shaping up at the start of 2011 and uh, the background of how we got there was I met my two partners, Jason and Paul in corporate America. First, I met uh, Jason Robbins at Capital One. That was one of my first jobs out of college. Uh, back, I want to say it was 2007, mm-hmm. and we shared a lot of interests. So we spent some time together out of work, but also, you know, we collaborated at our job. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a, a a couple jobs that you know had a lot of you know communication and meetings together. Yeah. So I got to know Jason really well. We were, you know, working on projects together. We had a lot of respect for each other. Uh, Both of us were doing well in the company Mm -hmm. and uh, getting good results, but we were playing poker. We were in the softball league, um, playing fantasy leagues, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, fantasy baseball and football. So a lot of overlap there. And we had the entrepreneurial interest too. Like Mm -hmm. we, even though we felt like we were doing well in corporate America, it didn't quite feel like, yeah. you know, fast enough for what we were looking for. Yeah. And so we always had this mentality like, you know, take jobs that pushed and developed us, but it was less about the exact scope or mm-hmm. the title or how much money. But it was like, what, what did it let learning? you
0: do on the fringe a little bit?
1: Yeah, exactly. It was like, do we like overlearning? learning? <laughs> yeah. So Capital One was all about analytics. Mm -hmm. The culture of Capital One from a data analytics standpoint is like top, top notch. One of the first, you know, 10 companies probably that people would name if they want to name like amazing cultures to develop analytics talent. So we spent three years there and then moved to a company called Vistaprint, which Mm -hmm. has a very Mm -hmm. unsexy product. Mm -hmm. uh, But they're everywhere. Yes. Yes. Well, that's really the thing. We ran channels at Vistaprint from Mm -hmm. a a go to market standpoint that really developed that. Jason started their out of home, uh, like TV radio, Mm -hmm. um, uh, the ads on taxi cabs you see everywhere. He started all of those channels at Vistaprint and had like a large budget and got to like make those decisions and evaluate the investments. And he got to learn that there and i learned crm i was running a a segment of crm marketing at vistaprint and that's also where we met paul paul was running a lot of their analytics platform Mm -hmm. Uh, that was like the underlying data and tech that, that was being used and the three of us came together for many discussions about you know startups and DraftKings was the one that we really decided to you know for the first time like Put down our foot and say like we're gonna start meeting nights and weekends developing this idea. Yeah, uh, it didn't take so long. I think all three of us were very inclined <laughs> to want to like get going, and our ideas just weren't very good. Like there was once an idea to start like a franchise of a like a chicken restaurant. <laughs> there was an idea of starting like. Um, Paul had this idea called deal Gator. That was an aggregator of daily deal sites. Nice, nice. If you remember when like Groupon huh? and of he's like, what if there was just one site you yeah, could go to yeah. for all the daily deals. And lots of ideas like that, that we talked and it wasn't enough. And this one just hit everything. It was like an early stage industry, giant addressable market. And like it was aligned with our passions, but also what we were good at, which is analytics and, yeah. uh, Digital direct marketing mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. So that was the one we started running with in 2011.
0: Yeah, and how much uh, of you know, I My head goes to again a tweet this morning around an NFT project and successful project but now roadmaps are a thing right and uh, I, In the sport kind of this almost like prospecting and investing in what might be and when you first, when the crew was together and you were still in your jobs and you had this idea of of DraftKings, you landed on the thing. Talk to me just a little bit about the confidence it takes to attack it. And then the day-to-day consistency and wherewithal to get to where you're at. Just in terms of the utter blind in a room we need to do this today and tomorrow and the next day, day over day, what did that take? Was there a lot of doubt from the outside? Like why are you guys doing this?
1: Yes. Well, lots of ways to explain the doubt, but one good one is that we did like 40 VC pitches that were all no, and then there was 41st one roughly was yes. Uh, that was a person named Ryan Moore from uh, the firm, is now called Accomplice. At the time, it was called Atlas Venture. Uh, and that was the first VC that said, like, yeah, I'll write a check and do, you know, do a seed round with you. Uh, get the ball rolling. But, yeah, you hear no a lot. And so a big part of the resilience and, like, the, the or at least in the early part is just expecting that a lot of people are not going to really think you're going to take your idea anywhere Mm -hmm. i think where that comes from is like most people who have ideas don't take it anywhere yeah uh and that's because ideas are pretty limited in value and execution is very high value you know like having an idea it doesn't mean a lot correct you know and Um, and there's i mean there's more ideas today than ever before
0: because you can just put it out to the world people sit yeah. in a room typically 10 years ago pre-iphone 20 2005 i got an idea is like cool i have an idea in my room and no one knows about it now you can tweet an idea you can get 200 retweets and like people are raising money off of that
1: yeah and that's kind of where you know we had a moment where we conceived of this idea of Draftkings. we were going to do one day fantasy drafts like you can draft every day pick new teams it's scored it's for cash you know So we conceived of this without really understanding that a few companies had a similar thing. Like in market, FanDuel did, Draft Street, who we eventually acquired Mm -hmm. a few years later. Um, We found Star Street, a company Jeremy Levine started out of Boston, like uh, where we were starting it. And we didn't know any of these companies. And so initially we're we're looking around and a little bit kind of almost disappointed that somebody else was in market doing something similar. (laughs) Yeah, I thought we had it. And then... You know, I remember Jason and I had a call and I was like, This sucks, like somebody else is kind of doing this. And he's like, Is ESPN doing it? Is like Yahoo doing it? Is anyone doing that good of a job? And we kind of realized it was very early. Like mm-hmm. we loved the idea, but nobody had the had put in the runway yet to build a substantial business. It was like tens of thousands of people at the most mm-hmm. who had ever tried these products. Mm-hmm. And so we decided, you know, maybe this is good. Maybe it'll be a little easier to explain the product to people. And we feel really good about our team. We feel good about how we can execute. And so we started moving forward anyway. And, you know, within six months, six to eight months, we had a fundraising kind of process well underway. And within a year of that time, we were in market with DraftKings in April of 2012.
0: How important do you think it was, obviously, three skilled individuals in good positions at corporate companies that have been exposed to probably like some real deal dudes and playmakers and get exposure but how important do you think it has been on your journey one working with founding something with friends people you had previous relationships with and two, in and around your passion. Now, I don't know if that is more your passion was data analytic, data and analytics or larger kind of gaming, sports, degeneracy, because now it is okay or more of an okay word. I'll, I feel comfortable saying it. But poker, right? All those things. How important do you think those factors were to still being in the game? 2012 to 2021, Nine years, long time to do something day in and day out. How important was that to you? I just keep going back to, in my head, individuals, d- dudes with group chat of their four best friend texting about how shitty their job is right now on Tuesday that are smart and want to be doing things together but don't.
1: Yeah. This is, I think, really, like, a scary moment for a lot of people when they want to leave their job, and it was for me. Like, the... The truth was, I had almost nothing to lose too, which is kind of crazy. But like my, when I was growing up, my family didn't really have any money, so like, um, was never used to having any like extra money floating around or lots of like flexibility or some kind of Mm. like great lifestyle. Yeah, comfort. I had decent corporate jobs, but I was probably you know it was you know sixty five seventy thousand dollars a year, eighty thousand dollars you know I was making some some income, but like what it added up to was when I was thirty years old, I had nine thousand dollars in the bank, and I had paid off my student loans and stuff like that, uh, and I had a daughter, right who is like, uh yeah, so I turned thirty, and I'm like, okay, so I have a daughter, I have nine thousand dollars, I have a corporate job i'm earning X yeah. it's like I'm on the yeah. treadmill yeah.
0: of 5% 8% raise a year yeah, whatever. Nothing yeah. Is, yeah. is
1: going on you know that's not a, an engine but I know almost everybody is in that yeah. predicament and uh, everybody I knew is in that same predicament I actually couldn't point to one person I knew <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. left to do something yeah. Entrepreneurial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's actually like kind of scary how reinforcing that is and uh at the end of the day though, like it takes that like moment of realizing I actually don't have anything to lose here. Like could I get another job similar to the one that I had at VistaPrint in six months? Like yeah, I could. Mm-hmm. Um is it a big risk for me to take the nine thousand dollars I have and put it into DraftKings as seed money, like which is what we did. Like, not really. It's a <laughs> lot it feels like a lot, but is it really like, you know? And so that's kind of what we did. And Jason and Paul were the same, like nobody was sitting on a giant stockpile of cash. Mm -hmm. Um, we put $25,000 into the company seed money just to get us to the point of out fundraising, you know, with Mm -hmm. VCs and to develop the product a little bit. And it was like all $9,000 I had, Jason put in like something similar, (laughs) you know, it was like, we Paul put in something similar and we were like small money to a lot of people, but like to us, that was everything. Oh, that was everything. Yeah, like, we were like, like, baby, like let's go. Yeah. We're like, we had that great combination of, we felt like we were fully invested, but also like, I think we realized maybe we don't have as much to lose, even mm-hmm. if this doesn't go so well, like yep. we don't have as much to lose as we think, but being fully invested like that, like putting everything, there's a certain mental like, yeah. dynamic to like, do you think I that's important? Work.
0: Yeah. Do you think that's important as a, key to success early on yeah
1: not hedging yeah not hedging is important and like one thing we did hedge on is like during we were doing nights and weekends and a corporate job it's like i put all my savings yeah 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 but i had this kind of like corporate job and Mm -hmm. we were doing nights and weekends and the number one thing we heard from everybody was like when i say everyone i mean vcs like multiple who wouldn't invest because we didn't quit our job yet and I, I thought that that was unfair <laughs> at the time. I'm like, it's kind of like it.
0: counterintuitive too, because you're being practical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You think it's smart, mm-hmm. but, um, the less, the less hedge, the less kind of outs you have, I think the better for a lot of early stage investors. Mm-hmm. They want like all in founders and yeah, that was probably like, at least like tactics wise, the quote unquote mistake that I think we made was we should have quit our jobs sooner. Yeah. Uh, and like once we backed our idea with our savings and our nights and weekends and so much time investment, we should have just, just went gone fully, fully all in. Yep. Yeah. And so that was the one tactical mistake that I think made our kind of early days a little harder. Does nine
0: years, 10 years, 2011 into market 2012, you know, it's I'm literally sitting in a room with an individual that put his $9,000 of savings to create. What DraftKings is nine years, you know, later innovating NFT platform, uh, just so much stuff happening nine years later. Like gambling is becoming like mainstream, acceptable, actually part of cultural jargon. Not that it always wasn't, but like ESPN is literally does like spot on betting shows now. Does it feel different? And the reason I ask, what I mean by does it feel different? Do you, does it still do you have a day one feeling still a bit? or at what point did a little bit of success come in, understand what you've built and kind of like a re kind of put a hat on? What I'm trying to get to a little bit is this notion of success. And again, I've spent a lot of time near in and around Gary and there's people that can come up with an idea, boom, all of a sudden they get a bunch of money in, 30 days in and it's like they're the hottest thing in the world. You know, how, does it still feel like the early days for y'all right now? What has that been like? And almost like what's the relationship with time over those nine years?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I, there's a lot of really like special aspects to being a part of DraftKings that maybe aren't everyone's experience. For us, we always felt like we were part of an industry that had mainstream Acceptance, but the policy was just Mm. like a little Mm -hmm. behind, Mm -hmm. maybe like where U.S. Mm -hmm. consumers are. You see that now, like with the referendums on sports betting, it's like seventy percent yes, yeah, like please regulate (laughs) and and allow it. That was uh, Virginia did that, Uh, Louisiana did that, just in the last election. And so, when people are asked, it's generally like a very popular thing. And same with fantasy. If you go back a few years, there was a window of time when some people were questioning they're like is is this yeah you know, um, it was
0: literally every commercial yeah. on every <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
1: and there was questions of like what is this is it gambling is it like a skill game um and among other things i think what became very clear is that people feel like they should be able to play fantasy they feel like they should be able to do sports betting it's overwhelmingly popular with voters um and there's like many countries i mean uk being one of the biggest examples premier league it's like australia you know some of the bigger uh, kind of gaming markets
0: Mm
1: -hmm. you know decades old markets in Mm -hmm. some cases like uk has been operating sports betting for decades yeah so (laughs) windows in stadium yeah yeah so you get the huge retail presence yeah it was even pre the internet Mm -hmm. you know and it's so part of the culture, you know, and U.S. isn't so different, but the policy was a little behind, and there was a couple, you know, um, hurdles in the way. One being this law PASPA, which was the um, sort of law that prevented New Jersey from launching sports betting when they wanted to, and they took it all the way to the Supreme Court and mm-hmm. won, basically saying like the federal government can't tell a state that they yeah can't and that open the, the floodgates yeah exactly and so. The policy throughout the history of DraftKings has evolved a lot, and it's become much more liberal. And I think uh, that's very aligned with what Americans have wanted, I think, mm-hmm. all along. But being a part of that tailwind has just pr- you know, yeah. provided so Pretty much cool interesting feeling. scenarios as yeah. an operator. You know, for years, we were running fantasy then, you know, we hear this case is going into the Supreme Court, and next thing you know, we're in, you know, Europe learning about sports betting platforms. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. instead of me being a, a fantasy sports yeah. operator, yeah. now I'm learning how to, you know, stand up a sports book with our team. Same thing with iGaming, you know, and now most recently, you know, with Marketplace with the advent of yeah. uh, not advent, but like the kind of prominence of NFTs in yeah. culture, like yeah, we're really following this idea of an audience of what we call skin-in-the-game sports fans. And wherever that attention is being sprayed, that's where we want to be. Mm-hmm. Whether it's fantasy, sports betting, collectibles, you know, we serve a specific audience. And that's what DraftKings is really all about. Yeah, Because our interests change so much, that's really what keeps it interesting, I think, and what keeps it fresh.
0: Has that sped up? Have you found that that change in interest for the... You know, average mm-hmm. consumer is moving at a faster clip.
1: Um, it feels fast in some ways, but not faster than you know our engineering. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because we—that's our culture as a company. I mean, we are like a hawk. Mm-hmm. We're tracking yeah. and understanding. And it's what's led
0: to a lot of the success. And I would say from a consumer, what's differentiated the brand, I I think, is that ability, right? The average maybe person that's looking to bet on an NFL game, like whoever's taking the ticket, minus 110, what have you, right? Then you got same game parlays. You can do some things that maybe is like a level above just the person that wants to throw a $5 bet on the game but i think from a brand perspective which is getting people top of the funnel understanding the change in interest the speed and in interest is important one of the reasons i'm going down i think this path in conversation with you again board ape as an ip what five months old four months old yeah and then you think about the success, Gao, Siri, today, Madonna; these names thrown around, reinventing Hollywood, right? Like oh, the, the there will be. It's it's written blockbuster movies, multi million dollar, you know, toys and all that. And I I worry at times about individuals that are passionate that see board and say, "I'm going to create it," and think that can be the norm or I almost see some danger in reaching that level five months in knowing that cool, what's, what's it take to go the nine years, the 20 years, the 50 years. And was there certain moments where you had to step back or when I'm thinking about one thirty-seven PM, I want gr- a gradual sustainable growth that you can, you know, feel along the way. I feel like sometimes you go to the mountaintop in two seconds, you look around what else, is there for people that are looking to get into building ip through blockchain is there anything you would talk about in your early days uh, just getting off the ground
1: yeah like does that make
0: sense how i kind of wrap that up
1: yeah i think the there's a big question that almost everybody i think has the same bias which is to think like sort of big but not too too big Mm -hmm. where it seems like you have to be google yeah you know you have to invent google search or something to be like the guy (laughs) what was crazy with DraftKings, like was i was actually like the person who was probably in the middling as is you know i think paul somewhat somewhere in the middle on the video so i was sort of like this is going to be a great business good solid like you know people like fantasy sports. This will be awesome. In the early days, Jason is like, we're going to build like ESPN. And then Paul's in the middle. He's like, I want to build a very scalable system. Yeah, like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a system yeah. that like, we'll we see how it's going. Into, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's going well, I want it to be like an accordion. But like, if it's not, then, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like be ready for scale. Correct. and. Where we were lucky was having somebody like Jason, who's like basically like Elon Musk type person. Like, um, not to overly characterize like um, every, I think, elite tech yeah, CEO yeah, is yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty uh, unique personality wise. Fair. But he's like on this caliber, right? He has a crazy vision, things very large. He like makes aggressive plays that make sense, you know? not just like chaos and, and throwing wild darts everywhere, but yeah. like very calculated, very thoughtful, yeah. but like
0: big. At first you're like, what? And then you lift under the hood and you're like, understood.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, you're talking about 137. And if somebody's like, okay, but like, how do we be CBS in 2038 or whatever? You know, yeah. it's like that kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How do we be bigger than any media company? <laughs> yeah, like right. the whole. And yeah. so when you have that though, also like steering the ship and and the rudder it changes a lot Mm -hmm. i think culturally like you you build for scale you invest you know in the organization you invest in the best talent Mm -hmm. um not looking for a quick out and so when you're building something that you think will be there in 20 30 40 years not something you're looking to flip to you know a private equity company it's very different how you execute
0: Mm -hmm. let's switch it to uh collectibles and web3 and nfts uh growing up did you were you surrounded by much of a culture of collecting did you have certain things that you liked physically
1: yeah so back i i was you know the the adolescence age during the sort of junk wax era Mm -hmm. of sports cards early like 92 93 whatever when they were printing 10 million of every single card. Yeah, yep. So every single one of my friends had, you know, yeah, all every, of the cards. <laughs> You'd <basically. laughs> like, like "Playmate, look at my cards." you yeah. like, play
0: date. the same fucking shit."
1: Yeah. And like I was saying, I never had a lot of <laughs> a lot of money, but also like the collecting of cards wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. like that expensive. You could yeah. buy packs of cards for a yeah. dollar, whatever. And so that was the era that I started collecting, you know, sports cards and everybody I knew was doing it. So it'd be, it always felt very mainstream mm-hmm. to me, you mm-hmm. know, um, Everybody had all the cards. People had a favorite player. Like I was collecting Barkley. I had friends who were collecting like Jordans Mm -hmm. that probably did way better than mine. Yeah. um, Although they probably got ruined by now. Yeah. Yeah, I got wrecked compared (laughs) to the Jordans and whatever. I had a friend who was collecting like Ken Griffey Jr., Mm -hmm. everything Ken Griffey Jr. So we would just like trade if I pulled something that I knew somebody wanted would do trades for the, the stuff I wanted. And yeah very very like recreational very it just seemed like everybody was doing that um and then yeah as i got into college i just became much more into poker so Mm -hmm. like i almost pivoted to the point of like attention goes where it goes yeah poker went absolutely ham in like 2003 crazy uh to the point of like 40 50 60 million americans playing poker (laughs) it was like unbelievable through the roof and where what year did moneymaker win that was in oh three that was like boom and then there was the run yeah yeah and what was funny about that was i purely by luck i got into poker two years before two or three years before that because of this movie called rounders Mm -hmm. which was the matt damon edward norton whatever movie about poker and it was about like The movie is horrendous now. Like if you watch it, it's not authentic. Yeah. Like people would just ridicule it with modern poker. But at, at the time, it was like people didn't understand that there was people playing poker trying to actually win money. Yeah. And they were able to like build a lifestyle around that and whatever. And that was something I thought was cool. I'm like, oh, I can make money playing poker. And I was at college, like just going off to college and so I had that time too I could just sit in my, mm-hmm, my uh, dorm yeah. room and learn and so instead of like going out every single night I was like playing poker and I was like meeting friends from from the internet mm-hmm. who were like teaching me things and yeah. then we were talking about hands and it was probably like half of what I was doing in college honestly yeah, it was like learning sense. poker and then with the money maker boom then it became like I know what I'm doing plus it's very mainstream and I really like this yeah so that kind of all replaced a little bit of the, in the short term the totally. collectibles and my path was sort of like poker then into fantasy and into DraftKings and that was like a really coherent like yeah. path yeah and now it's kind of funny coming full circle back around back around yeah.
0: it's um how about
1: family wise outside of
0: sports because I I, I my mother chotchkeys like the 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 culture in and around like. Stuff like just tchotchke stuff. Like if you look at the desks here at Vayner, there's just some may say shit everywhere, but there's just stuff. And I think as as what I've I think found is a lot of people unconsciously have collected stuff their whole life. And even you, when you just said about playing poker, meeting people online, there's these things that we get into or passions. It's. Uh, total tangent and I do this but like the things that you're good at I think a lot of times you don't realize you're good at and it takes outside forces to be like, no, 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 you're good at it. Like before NFTs, I used to find, I used to love finding graphic designers on Instagram that had like a thousand followers and being like, you're really good. And they don't think they're that good. They're like, yeah. what do you mean? I do this shit in my spare time. It's like a throwaway thing that people make fun of me about. You being able to connect with and actually legitimately become friends with people on the internet over poker in 2003, whether you know it or not, is probably a skill that's given you a lot yeah. to date. Um, I guess to where I was going is just like, I think the NFT collectible culture is going to smash in a way that most people think about cards. Most people try to put some trading investment moniker to it. But like people are buying shit just because they like it more times than not. I mean, sneakers, handbags, rings, jewelry, it all will flow into digital collectibles.
1: Yeah, the way I think about it is very similar. It's you're this, you know, you show up, you're a person and everything around you is your identity and what you collect, what kind of art you think is cool, how you like design your house even, you know,
0: or don't or Um, even don't how you don't design your house is an indication on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The type of friends that you're (laughs) around, the um, hobbies, you know, are you playing golf or are you playing chess or are you like whatever you know um everything kind of represents these parts of your identity and collectibles are like top top way that people like express what is important to them or what they like and with nft with the like really strong sense of communities around projects as well like mm-hmm. more than ever has mm-hmm. has really created that dynamic because you might like hey, I'm, I like the cool cats community yeah, or yeah. something because they're like yeah. kind of They were actually were cool, by the way. I they're cool them. as fuck. Yeah, or or you like the, uh, the on one force uh-huh. or you like, you know, V friends or whatever. Like people are coalescing into these discords and, and on social around communities, around projects that they're like all a part of. And like, I think the combination of like, People are always doing that with art, with collectibles, but now with the ability to also have the community around it and the engagement and you're meeting friends. Um, I have like a telegram group with, 20, uh, it's like 62 crypto punk owners and I probably spend like an hour a day just chatting with them in there, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just like a, a very new, very interesting way I think that people are expressing themselves. I think collectibles is really like the think of it like a collectible is really the end state here. It's not like flipping things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know?
0: Do you something that has been hot to trot on my mind and it, because you just said you know, President of North America DraftKings spends X amount of hours in a telegram group to, having conversations with people in a day productivity insights right again now team of 35 based on editorial and i think that individuals especially work from home now you know we're programmed and we can be hard on ourselves of like what is a productive day what are insights how should people be spending their time how do you think about that for yourself because well again have been able to spend a lot of time with gary you know one thing he always is a proponent of of like you got to know yourself and and you know be able to judge yourself don't let other people you know do that like how do you judge your own productivity because i find that very productive Mm. right but there might be others and especially you myself maybe have a little bit more of a luxury of like not having a middle manager that's micromanaging the shit out of us um how do you what's your process for that
1: different by st- like stage of career, by a long shot. I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of jobs that you can measure and understand productivity with even like metrics or things that are tracked pretty easily, you know? Um, for my job where I'm at currently, I have a team of you know over a thousand people. I have six direct reports who each run very large organizations and they're extremely competent, very senior. Uh, have built amazing relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. It's not like a ship that's going to cruise into an iceberg. Yeah. And what they need is not me meddling in every decision that they're making. They don't need me micromanaging their their mm-hmm. output. It's it's putting a rudder on like the organization and what's valued and not, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. setting higher level objectives, right? Yeah. And like what I've found is like what, it's almost like confusing sometimes, like what is productivity when you're not measuring it in the short term, like what did I get done today or this yeah. week, but you're measuring it more in the context of does our company have an exciting roadmap for 10 or 20 years? Do we feel like we're in a really great position to like attract and retain the attention of tens of millions of, of you know, what we call skin in the game sports fans over a decades long horizon? And like what are like the chess moves or the deals or the agreements or the projects you need to be doing now or Mm -hmm. thinking about and evaluating now that will make sure that you're always you know you win some battles you lose some but like you're always kind of in the at least having the battles and being in the battles and on the field yeah and sometimes it's even just how do we get more competitive in this area you know Mm -hmm. it's like hey we're not all the way where we want to be how do we get more competitive in that area yeah so Just putting a general rudder on the operation is so much, so much of like what's happening now. And I also spend more time than ever customer facing now, you know, like, um, there's probably four or five year stretch where I was pretty heads down Mm -hmm. and spent relatively little time in the community. It was like the early days yeah, yeah. yeah. Then in the middle, we were scaling like crazy, you know, building a sports book when I was like heads down internal building like teams that didn't exist. And now it's almost like I feel really great about our leaders. I feel really great about our organization. And uh, people like know what they're doing very, very well. And being out in the community with players, you know, that's been something that I found tremendous value in. It gets you a pulse on where are we at.
0: Yeah. I want to wrap it up with one final thing. I'm going to go back to... When you mentioned, I believe it was Paul, the, the two of you were really rapping on the positions you found yourselves in in your early stage of your career, and you said something very distinct. You said, "What? What were you? What maybe challenges? But what you said is, what? What do you get to learn from the position? You liked being in a position where cool, you're working, you're getting a paycheck, but you're learning stuff, and you feel like you're adding tools to your tool shed." How important is that? Because that's what I always felt. My mom, for pretty much until like 18 months ago, had no clue what the hell I did with my career and life and like values me going back to get an MBA. And I always said, I view I'm getting paid to be at an MBA. Like I always, like I used I journal a lot and I would write down like, do something that makes you uncomfortable today. Like what are you challenging yourself with in work? Do you think that's a mindset? Thing, do you think you can work, walk into most positions, entry level at DraftKings? Are there certain ways or things that an individual can do to challenge themselves versus just sit back and take like orders? Because I think again, work from home has now presenting challenges. Maybe less cultural touch points. Maybe less um, fringe benefits coming to this cool office, hanging out with cool people. I always was like, if I'm not being challenged or being put uncomfortable, well then the job's pointless. How do you think about about that? I think a lot of individuals that will listen to this are in a job that they don't like, but it pays them. Is there a thing that they can do, a mindset that they can change to get more out of it than just money?
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody has different situations. Like my parents were in the military. They didn't go to college. They were in the military, came out. My dad worked in a prison for literally like 27 or 28 years and retired has like a pension whatever and did he love working in the prison like no he did that Mm. because you do what you have to do like my mom similar idea she was a hairdresser she got a job at uh parks and recreation department in new hampshire and then she retired right Mm -hmm. it's like they everybody has their own circumstances but like I think that there's a little bit and my, even people like my parents I think looking back would probably agree. I think there's maybe like a little bit uh not enough premium placed on how rewarding is the work you mm-hmm. do, how aligned is it to something you really want to be spending your time on? Like that um idea of like just take one for the team for 35 years because you have like a a child or you have a family depending on you or something. Like that steered so many people 's careers for so many decades, and mm-hmm. I think that like there is an opportunity to be a little more mindful of like am I learning something that i 'm interested in? do I feel like I 'm getting more than just that paycheck yeah. you know? and the badge of honor that you know that comes with like supporting a family and stuff so um it goes back to like this idea to me of like you probably or at least in a lot of cases you may have less to lose than you think by taking a risk on trying something new Mm -hmm. right and just being able to like make a good decision on that to try to put yourself in a good balanced spot yeah do you
0: think about it as a as a as a company about um obviously there's benefits outside of a paycheck right? healthcare 401k and then this what's happened in tech over the last 10 years you know a lot of shows have been made about like all right you get the beanbag and the foosball table and all that but do you think much about you know the challenges developing your the employees as as an operator
1: yeah i mean that's especially when you're playing the game of like how do i attract and retain and get like the best work of somebody's career out of them, um, and have them not just kind of like find a different job yeah. and leave in a year, like to create that kind of culture and environment can be very difficult. And like what you mentioned, you were telling me the story about, you know, I was like, you know, started at Vayner, then I was assisting AJ and then Gary, and now I'm like running 137. <laughs> like having that kind of sense of, okay, how do I advance and mm-hmm. progress? And like, will the company really give me an opportunity? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, yeah. well, are they really going to do it? Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah, Cause there's a lot of really shitty companies. Like they'll try to give you a little raise. They'll try to like, you know, Oh, you don't vest your thing for another year and a half. So you're stuck or we'll give you 7% raise. Mm-hmm. Or if you come mm-hmm. with a job offer, you got somewhere else then they'll go back to you and they'll be like, Oh, we'll we'll match the job offer that you. Yeah, got yeah, exactly. Amazon. Now, now like, we will. <laughs> why do I have to go to Amazon? You know, and so some of our practices at DraftKings are we don't have a ton of a ton of attrition. Like some of our practices are very aggressive in terms of like we want to have the best benefits package. We want to have you know constant evaluation of how our compensation works. Uh, and make sure that it's you know at, at a very competitive level for each job, <clears throat> but also it's on the opportunity side, because, like we were just talking about, like so many um, I think so many, especially like newer to the workforce um, parts of our company, like so many people care most about that opportunity. like what are yeah. you getting? what's the the you know potential to progress and advance and get promoted and get more responsibility? Uh, or be put into a stretch role and so just having that like tightness around management being able to build plans for each employee um one thing i think um we haven't you know had to do a lot of because of how fast we're growing either is have conversations like you know there's no opportunity here yeah right he's like no we're actually going the other way there's going to be more people and less opportunity yeah i have actually a lot of empathy for some industries that don't have a lot of of growth rate yeah DraftKings and and online gaming, sports betting in general is growing at a massive clip. Yeah. So we're able to support a good growth and a lot of opportunity. But yeah, I do have a lot of empathy for some industries that maybe are like shrinking or they're Mm -hmm. growing a single digit percent and they have to talk to people about, you know, hey, maybe there's not an opportunity to to advance to manager. Mm we don't know when there's going to be one, but yeah, a lot of people I think that rotate in industries like you know or companies like DraftKings. Yeah, they come from those situations, correct? Yeah.
0: And they're looking for higher growth or realize there's not that much to lose because this industry is going in decline. Yeah. So why am I why am I sitting here?
1: Which makes our job really hard. Which is basically how do you find the next vector of growth and the next vector and like where is that going to keep coming from and that's where things like you know uh being in market Mm, being customer facing really like understanding really understanding your audience and like what's next that's something we feel like we've been right on a lot you know whether it's like 10 years ago what were people doing if you like you know having skin in the game on sports it's not much right correct and right. so, by trying to always find that next vector, I think it puts a lot of, uh, a lot of motivation, I guess, in the back of our mind to like keep finding growth, keep finding exciting vectors to like build our relationship with our customer.
0: You are a Boston kid, right?
1: Yeah, I was born in Lowell, Lowell but you came Massive.
0: down to NYU for college, Columbia. Columbia. You came to yeah. NYC, is what I meant for college. What was that, like, being a Boston sports fan? Yeah, that was Because <laughs> those were good days. Like, those are better rivalry days for the cities, at least, I feel.
1: Yeah, that was really funny. I was in the high school. Um... So I started running track when I was, it was spring of freshman year, and I was good at distance running, which I didn't even realize. But I did football, and I did winter track, but I had, like, the wrong distance. I was, <laughs> I was running mid-distance. And so I was just okay. And then outdoor, I ran the mile, and I think I ran with, like, no training. I ran, like, a 450 451 mile. Jesus. Like the first time I did it. That's and my insane. coach is like, you're doing this now. <laughs> yeah. And then going into like sophomore year, I got ninth in New Hampshire in cross country. And then I was like one of the best distance runners in New Set. Hampshire. Yep. And I'd never even heard of any of these. <laughs> yeah. My parents didn't go to college. And I didn't even know people really who had, like, for the most part, because my dad worked in a prison. I was meeting his friends who worked in a prison that didn't, they were like in yeah, the military, correct. or they were cops. You weren't getting asked, like where are
0: you going to school next year much?
1: Nobody, yeah, nobody was telling me about this stuff. And like the people from my high school, even they were going to like University of New Hampshire or whatever, like mm-hmm. like a lot of local colleges. So those are the ones I knew <laughs> yeah, most yeah. about. And so anyway, what happened was I was getting calls from recruiters uh, for track, and that's how I learned about, first I heard about Brown, and then Columbia, and then I, <laughs> I started to like do more research and figured out what all these, like, what's Ivy League yeah, schools. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. What's going on here? Yeah. And I said, okay, I see what's going on. I want to go to this school. and. I had um, I had one kid who was from like a I sort of knew him from running who went to Columbia and when I went on a visit he was like showing me around and I thought the coach was nice so I ended up in New York which is like the only time I was ever not around Boston Boston beer, yeah and yeah I went here for four years and this was in two thousand through two thousand four so I remember like some of the sickest moments were. Like the Red Sox blowing it in, <laughs> yep. with Pedro Martinez, like oh. blowing the game in the uh, was it ALCS yep. in uh, 2003, and then 2004 after I was out of college, then it was like that was the year that they finally you know <laughs> yeah, did broke they come back broke
0: one. Fucking, I was at that yeah. game. So I Grand just, Slam. Was that Damon? Yeah, Johnny right.
1: Damon. It was like early, right? Yeah, second it was early. Or yeah, second
0: inning, they load the bases, boom. Yeah, and so we it's just, just totally wrecked them. And that was
1: like David Ortiz and everything were just top, top, you know, peak of their career. Yeah. But I went through all four <laughs> years of college without anything good happening. Any luck. Yeah, I guess we had the Patriots. The Patriots, like, uh, yeah. had the Brady. But you,
0: you, you gradually, I would imagine, wore the Red Sox hat less as, as yeah. the, the career progressed, but... Then, uh, yeah, we've pretty much fallen out of favor here yeah. in New
1: York and most things sports. <laughs> and now, like, I'm paying attention. I don't want to say I'm, like, a fair-weather Boston Red Sox fan, but I think there was just such oh, a heightened... It was... People, like, cared so much back in the early 2000s. <laughs> it was everything. <laughs> it was the, Yeah, once you, we won in, like... 2004, 07, I think it was like mm-hmm. 2013. Yeah. The
0: second that ball went over, and, well, game four in the series, because we were up three, we were winning. Yeah. The Yankees were winning in game four. Yeah. Did we have Mariano?
1: Mariano it, didn't come in, I don't think, in game four. but I'm pretty sure he blew the save. So what happened? That was when Dave Roberts pinch hit, stole second, and then Bill Mueller hit the <sighs> single. The and second then, that happened, yeah, it's never been the that same. That was like the <laughs> craziest... I remember watching this game at my house, and I'm, I was like, this would be pretty cool if, yeah. if you know, they somehow figured Well, then it just kept out.
0: happening. kept going, it kept going, it kept going, it yeah. kept going. Yeah, and then it's game seven, and you were up like 6 nothing in the second inning.
1: Yeah, and I remember, this was the year, too, where, not to go back in the history books, but they traded Nomar Garcia Para for all these these dudes. Mm-hmm. They had... Um, Uh, Dave Roberts came in. I think, didn't they get the Twins first baseman who was like an all-star and then he wasn't even starting? I'm trying to remember. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. And so anyway, we had all these dudes that were just like, who are these people that we lost our best player? And Nomar was the guy. Yeah. And we had like Pedro, we had Ortiz, but Nomar was like the guy. And... Yeah and then somehow that turns out to be a good trade. Yeah, like yeah, Dave, it was so Yeah, there's something like Dave Roberts specifically like stealing the base and then like scoring and his relationship to that trade that just made me feel like we were going to was happening. Yeah. That was
0: the first actually cuz I went to that game 7. The Motorola flip phone with like the three colors on the front by the camera was the hottest phone ever. My dad's buddy had it. And we lost, and I think my dad. I was so if that was oh, was that 04 you're saying? 04, 05. I was born in '91, so I was 13 or 14. My dad told me because of the sheer sadness that he was going to get me my first cell phone that night because as that was about as devastating as it got for a Yankees fan. Um, we're going to wrap up. You're going to go do this podcast. Final thing, and it can be a very succinct thought. In a couple words, key different, like, what do you believe has allowed for this the
1: business success you've had to date? generally like not being afraid to give up um like to get somebody and give something up to get somebody involved in the company that we wanted like at every turn if it's you know raising money getting an interesting investor in or you know, hiring somebody in, you know, and taking on whatever that compensation is, and whatever the equity is, and whatever, like building a team and like a, a group around us that um, that reflected that we were thinking long term and that reflected like we weren't afraid to give up some of our, you know, upside. Mm-hmm. We weren't protecting every share. You know, yeah. we were like, let's get people involved who can build a really big company. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a uh, if once. A lot of new, like, uh, entrepreneurs I, I've i talked to, like, have that challenge. Like, oh, I don't know if I really want to give up this much of the company this early or Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if... Because know, what I if we become DraftKings?
0: What if we become Google and then I gave up that 4%? Yeah.
1: It's the mental... Like, having... 100% of money. $20 million yeah. dollars is better than having, like, 80% of something pretty small, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, like, probably the number one thing is just that really aggressive posture on, like, get good people involved. Yeah. And, like, if somebody's willing to help you. We did the first league deal, like, MLB in 2013. We did a, a agreement with Major League Baseball in fantasy. Yeah. And things like that you know we're really leaning in at very early stages just trying to make sure we had good partners around
0: and even to just drill down on that on the mlb thing i think what the point you're probably making is like to get that deal over the finish line y'all probably had to really like be like hey we want this to happen and and they probably had some demands that you were okay with because you understood the value of the
1: partnership yeah, it was like we want them yeah, to. Like, we just we need want ownership. a partner. We want a, par- a real partner, like somebody really feels it. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're trying to minimize your investment, you're trying to never overpay yeah. for anything. Like at that stage, you just don't get yeah, it the never best gets partners around the table. People just say they have so many things that they could spend their time and energy on. So just getting people invested into the company who could really help us advance. Yeah. Love it.
0: Well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks a for lot. taking the time. Yeah, this was good. Well, if you listen this far, thank you. I appreciate you. That was fun. You can find Matt, also known as Kalish, on Twitter. I believe at Matt Kalish. Instagram at Kalish. His OpenSea account is fun to check out. He's Kalish there. But if you listen this far, again, I appreciate you. Check out 137 p.m. Discord. Holler at me on Twitter. And I look forward to having some more conversations. We have another recording coming up this week. We're going to start pumping these out once a week. Looking forward to it. Talk soon. Peace. This is
1: 137 p.m. Own Your Future. Start this minute. One thirty-seven p.m. is a Gallery Media Group original production.